this is the EQIQ podcast. And before we begin today, I'd just like to start with uh, sharing some gratitude. Uh, I'm so grateful for the blessing of acceptance and forgiveness in my own life. And I'm grateful to my wife and other empowered women who teach me more about giving every day. Welcome to the EQIQ podcast. I'm Aaron Henderson, and our guest today is the master gardener and heritage seed saver, Kay Baxter. Kay Baxter, along with her husband, Bob Corker, and family, is the founder of Koanga Institute and the Kotari Eco Village Project in Waiora, New Zealand. An inheritor of gardening knowledge of, of several generations, Kay Baxter has a deep and visceral understanding of the rhythms and cycles of nature that moves so fast when you manage a garden. With over 800 plus reserve heritage seeds and over 400 reserve fruit tree and berry stocks from all over New Zealand, Kay Baxter is truly a master of her craft and has managed to save not only the seeds of her communities, but also the stories of those families. Highly prodigious and productive, Kay has, the most, has most recently headed a new project called Regeneration Production, a highly comprehensive and in-depth resource of online masterclasses and courses on gardening, garden planning, permaculture, improving nutrient density in food, and making real compost and many more. Kay's online con content is formidable and is growing year by year. And at a time in life when uh, many would be winding down their activities, Kay seems to only be growing the team more and forging ever new directions in her mission to create a deeper ecological connection. Kay is the author of numerous books, booklets, including the Koanga Garden, including the Koanga Garden Guide, Designing Your Own Orchard, and uh, many more uh, small booklets as well. A deep believer in self-regeneration, the self-regenerating quality of the human body and soil. K Baxter's journey is an example of the difference one family can make when they follow their passion and strength. It's a real pleasure to welcome you to, uh, to the EcoIQ, um, K Baxter. Uh, welcome to EcoIQ. Uh, you're very welcome. So I, I, I just wanted to, um, I, I was just a bit curious. We just mentioned before we uh, started this interview that you were just at a, at a, um, a tribal meeting, right, in, in New Zealand with the Maori tribe. Could, could you let us know a little bit what, what that was called and what, what, what you were doing there today? Um, well, one of one. Um, I, I mean, I'm I'm working quite a lot with one of the tribes here, and they're they're determined to um, kind of retribalize, <laughs> decolonize, retribalize, figure out their way forward around um, how to live in villages again and how to live based on their own values and their own... I mean, it kind of feels exactly what we all need to do, really, but it's just as challenging for them as it is for us because, mm. you know, they're, they're colonised now and um, they're living lives that don't fit with who they are necessarily. So, yeah, they're, they are feeling challenged to find a new way to tread on this earth again, go back to their roots. And how do you how do you feature in that one, um, Kay? They ask you to come along. Or? Yeah. Um, well, that's our journey too. Okay. <laughs> I think a lot of us are trying to are learning. You know, have the feeling and a deep cellular calling to like go back to our roots, to like go back to living simply, go back to living in a way that honours the earth and doesn't destroy the earth, regenerative rather than degenerative. And I don't think really it's any different, no matter what culture we come from. I mean, all of us have been colonised, haven't we, in, in yeah. some way, in some form, somewhere way back. And so it's kind of like this great yearning to go back to something that feels whole and complete and makes sense and is peaceful. Mm -hmm. 
It's a, it's actually quite a um, different. You're a bit different in the seasons um, over there. You're actually the um, we're in the north and you're in the south. So you're actually coming into summer there. You should be coming deep. summer solstice. Yeah, solstice, yeah. So how how do you um, keeping in touch with the season is probably something you're quite big on because when you've got a garden, you've really got a hand on the pulse. Um, wh- how what's it looking like in your garden right now? Is everything coming to flower and <laughs> smelling good? Yeah, this time of the year, um, it's like there's this great race for everything to get as tall as it can before the solstice, <laughs> and the solstice is next week. Wow. So it's like um, everything in the last four weeks. Um, I was just talking to Vitor, he's the, my film producer, and yeah. he's in Brazil at the moment, and he's just missed probably the most, mm. big, the biggest amount of growth that we ever have in the garden is like before the solstice and everything's just gone nuts. You know, the, mm. the beans are at the top of their poles and the corn's reaching its height and the sunflowers are heating up and everything's tall. Everything's yeah. going for it. Yeah, I saw a picture in your Instagram there of some purple corn or something, was it? Was it some kind of a look like purple silk or something coming from the... Maybe, yeah. Blue Hopi probably. Hopi, yeah. See, yeah, I, the corn I, all had different coloured silk. Yeah, that's it's amazing. Really, if, if uh, anyone wanted to, I mean, obviously we, we're not so visual here, we're doing an interview, but um, I just, uh, I would love people to check out your website because I really think it amplifies, you know, the diversity of things going, the colours and everything. It's so... Uh, you just want to eat the website when you look at it. It's really uh, that's really what you get color. from her- genetic diversity, heritage plant material. Yeah, mm, mm, that's definitely something we want to talk about today. Um, uh, I, I know that you um, that you have a really strong background in gardens from your grandmother's. You mentioned, um, and and I imagine that was a very powerful and strong foundation to build on. But like many of us that are guided in in. Uh, um, or, or decide to take a step outside of our comfort zone and do things we wouldn't normally thought possible. I found in my own journey there's usually one or two defining experiences that have driven me to a deeper connection and understanding. And uh, I was wondering if you could share the impact of, of uh, I know that you had um, health issues when you were younger, and I was wondering if you could share the impact of overcoming those it had for you in your own life and what the, if that impacted your drive to understand more the connection between what you're growing and you're eating and, and your health? Is that, did that have an impact on your drive? Yeah, I, think, I actually think that um, for a lot of people, um, the things, what I see is the things that make us change our lives or make new decisions is often when you have your children or when you have become grandparents mm. and your health. Those seem to be the three major drivers for change. And for me, I had, uh, but by the time I was in my, by the time I was 30, I'd had cancer twice. I'd had all my teeth out. I'd had most of my thyroid out. I've got um, ulcers across, scar tissue across both of my eyes. So I've got got very poor sight. Um, I've had four cesareans. I've just had, I'd had so many operations and so many health issues as a child, Quincy, um, that I basically had to make a decision, do I want to live or do I want to die? And I had to decide what path I was going to take because I didn't, I kind of had an inherent distrust of doctors. I knew that they didn't understand what makes a healthy person. They're not trained for that. They don't have that training. They're trained to deal with symptoms. So I guess I knew that quite young and um, I just set out to find answers and it's been a long journey but this been a, it's been an amazing journey 
So, yeah, part of that meant growing my own food and being really careful about how I eat and how I live. Yeah, it's a really, um, I think it's a really powerful, uh, um, would be a really powerful impetus to, you know, psychologically to, to really move forward in, in something that you're doing when you have to deal with, the, with, a, lot of, um, with a lot of health issues. What's yeah, I think behind that, though, um, when I look back, I know that that's what happened, but I think that I had already a really strong sense of um, trust and faith and a strong sense of the presence of um, spirit. Mm. And in a way, I think I just had the confidence that there were answers and there were solutions, and they were going to be ones that felt that felt right. Mm. Like, go ahead. You don't have to go and do things that don't feel right, that don't feel good. Like, there's a there's always a way, and there's always a solution. You have to be open to it. Mm. So it, I think that was kind of always there. Mm. Is that something you think you got from your from your grandparents, from your parents in the in the garden? Um, my grandmother, that I, I mean, I don't think they taught me what they what they gave me wasn't physically how to garden. It was mm. my my nana. Um, my nana, took, I remember her taking me one day out to the gate of her. She lived in a little suburban street in a little rural town in New Zealand called Martin. It's a very small town. And I remember her one day going to the gate with me and looking up the street and saying, oh, that lady's just had a baby out there. I must take her something. I can't remember what it was. Mm. And, oh, this lady over there's in hospital. I must go and take her some flowers. And, oh, that lady, it's her birthday down there. Let's go and do something for her. And it, what it gave me was a sense. I was very young, and it was, it was a feeling rather than an intellectual understanding it was just a feeling that if you're a gardener you've always got something to give mm -hmm. like the gift of being a gardener is having something to give that's the gift we get as gardeners we've always got something to give and the gift of putting dinner on the table at night when it's all from the garden or the farm or something you've created with your own hands together with the natural world and so there's something really powerful and deeply satisfying about that and it, it connects us. Like the thing that a lot of young people are missing today, I think, is because they don't, they don't have any way of connecting to the natural world or to the feeling of their connection to spirit. Yeah. And it's the simple, ordinary, everyday things that give you that. And so my grandparents had that. And so I could see in them that they had faith and that they had a lot of trust in, uh, they probably would have said God, but I never saw it as God. I always just saw it as the laws of nature. Mm -hmm. Like that there's an inherent intelligence in the way the universe works. Like when you plant a tomato seed, you don't get a human baby, you get a tomato plant <laughs> because there's intelligence in everything, you know, and if you work somehow with, with that, inherent intelligence in the natural world you you're connecting with it and you feel the strength and the power and it gives you a sense of who you are somehow like hmm. when you when you buy your food in the supermarket you're missing out on that and when you aren't 
aren't a gardener be able to when you're not able to give when you haven't got things to give people think now you've got to have money to go and buy gifts but mm. don't need money to buy gifts so you, think a, a, so you think that that power of being able to give really has a strong uh, connection quality to connecting with with nature yeah mm. yeah i think both in terms of understanding who we are and feeling good about ourselves but also in terms of connecting us with other people and um yeah, I think in, lo- in lots of ways, actually. Yeah, it's, a, it's such a such a powerful uh, feminine quality, actually. I thought it's actually one of the qu- first questions I wanted to ask you about what your Nana said in the garden there. It's actually something, uh, personally, my um, my wife is also a very powerful giver, and it always inspires me to 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 do better. So it's a it's a very um it's a very uh, special quality I'm I'm trying to develop more in myself as well. Naturally, I think it's something that really comes quite naturally to uh, to, to women, especially more empowered women. So, um, something definitely men would uh, would, uh, would would do well to, to take on. I think. <laughs> you, you yeah, strike- well, I mean, it comes with having children too, doesn't it? Like you know, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's I think a very strong part of being feminine, yeah. But we've all got the masculine feminine in us. Yeah, it, it, it definitely helps having a house full of kids. I can, I can testify to that. <laughs> you get pretty good at giving. Grandchildren yeah. too. <laughs> you, you strike me as a very empowered woman, uh, Kay. Do you, do you think that's true? you feel that or that's just something? Um, I, have, I've, I have a very strong sense of, of – that I'm here on this planet to do a job and that I'm doing my best to do that job and that is why I'm here and that's that's me. Could, could you let us know what, what that job is and when, if there's a moment that crystallised that, that, that for you, that I must, you know, this is what my thing is? Um, well, it's kind of – I don't think there was an exact moment when I actually knew that. I think it's just growing and growing, but I became aware of it. I think when um, I started to notice that a lot of people were attracted to what I was doing and that created quite a few issues for me because some people are really good at supporting the amazing supporters and some people are really good at sabotage. <laughs> and I had to, that's what happens, you know. Like, mm. I think someone who. sabotage your work? Well, I don't think they said, I don't really understand what happens. But when I think I am, a, like, I am a strong person and I have a strong sense of who I am and I'm on a mission and I'm a really hard worker. And so I think some people feel they don't a lot of people tell me they don't know who they are or why they're here Mm. and so they kind of somehow um and I don't want to get into all the negative stuff really but I do have a really strong sense of um who I am and I think that's growing I think it's partly it partly came out of my young years at younger years um at university during the Vietnam war and the Mm. New Zealand it was really like it was a very strong thing here, the Vietnam War, because our government lied to us about, you know, being involved and we knew people who were over there and fighting and they, we were being told we didn't have anyone over there fighting. Mm. And then South Africa and the whole apartheid thing, that was huge over here. Mm. And so it really made me think a lot about what my values were and 
made me conscious that my values were different to mainstream values and I wanted to spend my life finding ways to live my values and find solutions to the problems I could see rather than stay stuck in the problem because there's obviously heaps of problems and so I wanted my life to be about finding solutions. So I've just tried to do that, finding solutions, finding ways to do things. (coughs) I guess um, I have a a strong feeling of empathy for the earth, for papatuanuku, that's the Māori word for Mother Earth. Strong feeling of empathy for papatuanuku and... I think that's what drives me is so I want to live in a way that doesn't have a negative effect. I want to live in a way that enhances and regenerates the damage that's been done. Mm. Mm. And I take that to like everything I can in my life. So every little decision about what I buy and how what I do and how I'm, I'm, I've got a long way to go. I'm nowhere near where I'd like to be, but I've, I've learned a lot and I've achieved a lot. Yeah, I think there's definitely your content can speak for that, Kay. Um, I, it's something I've talked to quite a few times with the guests that we've had um, previously. Actually, I had one guest who's a um, called a shadow guide. He works with um, people to become more empowered themselves and, and manifest different things in their life, make better relationships. But he said, um, he in in his opinion, nature doesn't know anything but abundance. It's just us that make it a bit more complicated. <laughs> And um, I, I just, if you have a, you know, you've, you've got a garden, I'm sure you see that like very viscerally, you know, it's the, the, the abundance and regenerative quality of nature is so, you know, sometimes I think maybe we just need to get out of the way a bit and, and just put lighter hands on the on the things, but on, on, on nature to let it, let it do its thing. But I, when you're in a garden, the, the activity is so intense. I mean, you, you're really, you, you're doing quite a lot of activity with the soil. How, how do you, how do you like, um, do you balance out those um, those two things happening? The power of, of nature to regenerate itself, and and the quite you know high level activity you've got interaction with you know you're, you're choosing the plants that go in there, you're choosing the shape of the garden beds, and how, how do you feel that interaction? In New Zealand, I mean, in New Zealand, if we left nature to do its own thing, where the whole land will be covered in native bush. Yeah, and we can't live from the native bush. So we have to make a choice. Do we want to um, buy our food from the other side of the world, which is Mm. currently what's happening, and our supermarkets are full of food from China? Um, And here in rural Wairua, for example, this is the food bowl, this area here. We could be growing food for the world from here, but um, we're mostly not, and everything in our supermarket is from somewhere else. So we have to make a choice. So how do we want to live? And it's I want to grow my own food. So we have to do something. and But the thing that I don't, in a way, I don't know that that's, that's the, main, the main point. The main point that I saw that made the biggest impact here was we started gardening. We put our, you know, we, we built our garden where we grow vegetables. But it was when we planted the forest garden that we saw the huge shift. And what I saw was... We, where we are here was a sheep farm. For a hundred and something years, it was a sheep farm, right? And when sheep farmers in New Zealand, what they do is they set stock the animals so that there's enough animals in each paddock that they don't really have to do much shifting of the animals. They just stay there. 
and they keep the grass, you know, about terrible for the one soil. inch long, yeah. which means the roots are one inch long, which means the grass is very low low bricks and it's degenerating the soil mm. and there's not much stuff flowering, there's no food for insects, there's no birds. It's like it's very low-level ecosystem. It's like low-level life. It's not full of life and it's degenerating. Yeah. So what we found was when we fenced off areas and we started planting diverse ranges of trees for forest gardens, we started noticing about two or three years and the insect population went through the roof. Mm. And we started realising that all you have to do is allow the plants, I mean, it could even just be the pasture that the sheep were eating, allow it to go to seed. Plant mm. trees, plant things that flower, and what you're doing is you're providing food again for the insects, and the insects just come. They just come back in. And once the insect levels get to a certain point, the birds start coming in because that's the food for the birds. Mm. I mean, New Zealand really is a land of birds. That's what mm. it always was. Um, and so the bird species have got, like, new species coming in all the time. Well, they probably were here once. Um, and the numbers are just going through the roof. So it was actually the act of fencing the land off from badly managed sheep mm. um, to plant, starting to plant things and let things go to seed and let things go to flower that brought the insects, which brought the birds, which totally has brought the life back in. And one of the amazing understandings that I've come to from that is that in New Zealand soils, we are generally speaking low in available calcium and low in available phosphate in order to grow and have to in order to have high quality, nutrient dense, high bricks food, and to be building soil. Like you need balanced minerals and you need those too. They're really important. And we are generally deficient in them. So I'm looking around and I'm going, so we don't want to be bringing fertilizers in because they're destructive of them in someone else's backyard and they're um, not a long-term solution, but we have to get balanced minerals. So how do we do it? And phosphate is the most difficult one. You can recycle bones and shells and you can grow oats and lupins in the winter and put them in. You, they, they sequester calcium and phosphate into their bodies and put them in the comp. There's lots of ways you can kind of do it, collect leaves off trees that concentrate calcium, but phosphate is always the one that's difficult. Mm -hmm. I've come to see that in the process of creating forest gardens where you raise the insect levels again and, well, the insects come back and then the birds come back, it's actually the insect manure and the insect bodies and the bird manure, that mm. it's the animals, it's the animals' life and the insect life and the fish, all those, every, all the living animals, all the living species that, well, no, it's the animals, um, that maintain the phosphate in the cycle. Yeah. Mm. So if we have our, our annual gardens, like small clearings or patches within a forest garden, which is how they used to be like hundreds of years ago, mm. then the phosphate levels are maintained just by the life around us. Yeah. But we've, we've, we've cut those links. Like the whales used to be a really important part of the phosphate cycle in New Zealand because they'd eat, um, they'd bring phosphate up from way down deep in the ocean and it would come to the surface in the whale manure, which the birds would eat and bring it back on the land. Where would, the, where would they get the whale manure, Kate? 
It floats on the surface. Really? Like whales all up the New Zealand coast. They breed all along here. And, the, yeah. um, and so there are, even without knowing what we've kind of stuffed up, the result of, of our disconnection and our destroying species and forest and bush and all the things we've destroyed is that we've disconnected a lot of things in our in the ecosystems, which means now we have trouble with certain minerals which we didn't have trouble with before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think we don't need to necessarily understand all the detail, but we just have to start making decisions which reverse the trend. So by planting trees, diverse ranges of trees, and learning how to plant like following the laws of nature around how to create a healthy, amazing um, forest garden, um, diverse ranges of species, lots of rami or wood chip, lots of chop and drop, lots of cycling of carbon. You, it's That's food for the insects too. Like everything we do, like think about it in terms of feeding the insects, feeding the microbes, feeding the fungi, and you just – turn everything around and it starts regenerating. And when you start to see the regeneration, it's such a buzz. Like there's nothing more powerful to inspire you and keep you going than seeing some amazing thing happen that is regenerative and you weren't expecting it or it was a result of something you did. But, you, yeah, I remember one night um, Bob and I were in the bath. We had an, out, an outside bath and we could hear it. We'd... we'd designed this I did a workshop with Bill Mollison like years before yeah. and we designed this subtropical forest garden in the bath was in the forest garden yeah. and now uh, we heard this noise we could hear this noise and we thought it sounded like rats everywhere actually so we called out to the kids to get the torch <laughs> and go and have a look and see what was going on in the forest garden and it turned out to be frogs just everywhere like oh. eating slugs and snails and bugs all through the forest garden and we never designed it to bring the frogs in, but yeah. we put a pot there. Yeah. And but that's the kind of exciting thing that happens when you put enough diversity together, you know, in a way that kind of things. I mean, I like to think. I always think of um, so of guilds, of families, of fano, plants and trees and microbes and animals, all like co-evolved in in families. So make sure you fit them together well, intelligently, and the, what comes out of that can be amazing. And that is the, the kind of life that we can create just by good design, really. Mm. Um, I find it's the it's a, sometimes it brings up something really interesting for me that I, we really push on EcoIQ is that the connection is more important than the than the individuals themselves. You know, obviously individuals yeah. important, but those the yeah. amount of connections more we can build, yeah. that's a powerful, powerful tool for, for yeah. For yeah, Bill Mollison always said you've got to have five reasons to do it. And it's all about connections, diversity and integration. That's the integration, the connections. I totally agree. Mm. Yep. Yeah, it's about connection. It's uh, it's something I've, I've I've touched on on basically the last two guests I had. We interviewed Darren Doherty and, and, and Joel Salatin. And um, you know, you probably know they're very big on, yeah. on animal management. And um, yeah. this this link you you mentioned a little bit there that um, when the animals came in, that's when that you found a really big. In your case, it was birds. When the animal and insects, when the animals came in, you saw that it was like there was a big shift when the animal when that animal connection was. And I also feel it's a, the same thing. That's just my personal opinion. 
that when the humans come in, it can also have this, that similar regenerative effect if we're if we're in yeah. the right in the right direction. Definitely, definitely. I think there on lots of levels there are lots of ways we can support the process of regeneration, and and I think um, yeah, like and and one of the things that we can do, I mean, there are lots of levels of ways we can do it, but it's just putting things together, build, rebuilding guilds. Like you, you've only got to make a start and get a certain amount of connections there and it, they start to, it starts to happen by itself. Could, could you, what, what could you explain for um, people that are not, not so clear on what is a guild? Could you just uh, give us a little explanation? What a is guild, a guild is like a group of, say, for example, in our gardens here, we've got, in the summertime especially, a guild of plants that come from South America. So they're a group of plants that have co-evolved together in specific soils and ecosystems. Mm -hmm. So, for example, the the three sisters, you know, the the classic American um, corn beans and squash would be one of those guilds. And there are flowers that go with them too, like zinnias and Mm. all the bright, colourful flowers. They could have come – they've co-evolved in the same – same land and the same spaces and the same environments as those plants and they communicate, they recognise each other and they support each other. Mm. Under my corn always comes up every year without me planting it because it self-seeds, things like lamb's quarters, amaranth, purslane. It's a guild of plants that likes Mm. growing together, probably co-evolved together forever and they communicate and support each other. There's heaps of research happening now in biological agriculture to show that the greater the range of plants you've got, the more diversity in any one bed, the more production and the more regeneration will be happening. And so instead of weeding the corn, I just make sure the corn's dominant, but you can eat all the herbs that grow underneath them as well, but they're all supporting the corn. Mm. So in in the cycle of your gardening, do you have a cycle where you you deal with weeds or it's just so full with you've got the timing down right or how how do you you deal with that? No, I do weed. Um, so when I, I usually weed, um, I weed out plants that I don't want them where they are and I leave the ones that I do want them where they are. <laughs> <laughs> um, so they, in some, some places they are kind of a nuisance and some places they are of benefit. So I just mm-hmm. kind of, yeah. Um, and I would, if, I, if the main crop is corn, well, I won't let the corn get overtaken by lamb's quarters because I can only eat so much lamb's quarters. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me, you mentioned before the – go ahead, okay. Oh, and I mean, then the corn is – the flower corn is our main grain, so oh, it, would really? be, it wouldn't be good if I ended up with, like, five, 50 square metres of lamb's quarters <laughs> and, you know, not a good crop of flower corn. And tell me that you, you grind your own flour from the corn? Yeah, mm. yeah. We, that's, we that's your mm-hmm. We nixtamalize it and grind it and make tortillas or cake. I use it instead of um, every other grain. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Um, so you you also you mentioned before the importance of uh, well you didn't say the importance of it you just mentioned it before bricks and I just wonder if you could mention what, you know for explain to people a little bit basically what is the importance of bricks in in food what you know and, and what how you test that and. Yeah. Okay. So um, in New Zealand, it's quite well known because there's a lot of horticulture over here, and in vineyards, and in apple orchards, and um, other other fruit production, the the farmers use um, a refractometer. It's a little handheld tool that you put a couple of drops of plant sap on the on the surface, and um, you look through the lens, and it tells you 
what the levels of sugars are in the sap of that plant. And the levels of sugars are a reflection of all the solids in the, in the sap, and the solids are a reflection of the nutrient density because they're made up of amino acids and all kind. There's all kinds of solids in the sap, and it's all nutrients. So the sugar level is a reflection of the nutrient density. And essentially, um, what I have discovered is that the scale goes from zero up to about thirty on most refractometers, and up to a, a up to a number of up to 12 if the if the nutrient density or the bricks level is less than 12 then in nature that is food for the insects and fungi because it mm. because it means it's made up of simple sugars yeah. and insects and fungi have got digestive digestive systems which can only digest simple sugars they can't digest complex sugars yeah. and so those plants have a vibration that attract the insects and the fungi so if you've got crops that are getting pests and fungi problems, it's not a sign of a deficiency of pesticides and fungicides. <laughs> it's a sign of a deficiency or an imbalance of minerals. Hmm. And so once you get the bricks over 12 and the plant is photosynthesizing efficiently, it can keep on going up and up. And it goes through a whole lot of stages. So after simple sugars comes complex sugars, and that is what we need. And if the, if the plant continues to photosynthesize more efficiently, then it goes up to complete proteins. And then after that comes omega-3 and omega-6 being deposited in the reproductive tissue and the vegetative tissue. Where did you find those? And Sorry, what was the numbers that you found those ha that happening at? Above 12, you said, Kay? Uh, above 12 is complex. Around about, different crops have got different slightly, and they're not all exactly 12. It ranges probably from about 8 to about 14, depending on the crop. Okay. Um, all of this, this is the kind of stuff in our Growing Nutrient Dense Food Workshop online workshop um, and then um, it goes on up and the final stage that we know about now is as is the plant production of essential of of um, essential oils mm. which is medicine so if we grew all of our all of our food crops to be photosynthesizing highly efficiently and to be high bricks well they're all medicine every plant has its own medicine they're all medicine I mm, see so you're saying when, when the bricks is high, you find there is a, there's a higher oil production. The, the, the well, there's higher com, um, complex sugars, complete proteins, omega-3 and omega-6, and essential oils. Yeah. Mm, wow, that's amazing. Also, you, you mentioned um, there also about uh, raising, um, well, you mentioned about the high, high vibration of the or lower vibration of the food. And I know one of your big, um, uh, I don't know, Say heroes or someone that really influenced you a lot was um, Reams, right? Is that um, Gary Reams? Yeah, yeah. yeah and um, and uh, could could you uh, say could you let us know how how he influenced you because he had a very um, electromagnetic kind of a viewpoint on the on, on on farming and he was very big on the physics of things. He was a very he was a big genius. I, I, you, I actually got introduced to his work from you to tell, to tell you the truth. But um, yeah, I'm just getting into it. So could you let us know a bit about what's that? How that influenced you? And, um, well, it had a huge influence on me um, because um, there's a man called Dr. Arden Anderson who comes to New Zealand and uh, um, Australia every now and again. He's an American doctor and he's also a soil scientist and he learned from Dr. Kerry Reams. Hmm. And, but I couldn't, I found him really hard to learn from. Everyone, like we all have different teachers and different ways of learning and I'm not a scientist and I'm, 
um, I'm, I'm not, I've done no science, you know, and so I, I needed someone who could explain it in ordinary terms and not the language of science. Mm. And so then eventually I got, there are other people too, there's an amazing guy called Graham Sait, but when I found the book called Nourishment Home Growing by, by A.E. Beddo, he wrote it, but he's translating the work of Dr. Kerry Reams. And his book is the book that I found, I could sit down with the book and I could read a bit of it and I was totally blown out because I've got no science and I could, un- I never imagined in my wildest dreams I could understand how energy becomes matter. Like to mm. me, that was always magic. Mm. Like you know how telephones works, magic to me as well. I I'm pretty bad on all that stuff. <laughs> so but I could read this book and I could actually understand it, and I was totally mm. blown out. And he, so he begins the book by saying that studying the stuff, we're students of the laws of nature. And I cried when I read that because I was in my 50s when I first read that and I thought all my life I've been trying to figure out what the laws of nature are and I've, there's nothing about it in the education system, anywhere in the education yeah. system. Like how come we get to be, we've got to figure it our own way, you know, when you're in your 50s or 60s, like crazy. It's the most important information we could be given as children. So anyway, he goes in that book, he goes through step by step how a healthy cell is built, and it's the same for plants, animals, humans, everything. Healthy cell and every living thing is built the same way. And it requires certain things in a certain order, and if we can meet those things, then we can support a health, the production of a healthy plant or a healthy human. But if we don't understand what those things are, how can we know we're working with the laws of nature? I mean, I I would have been the kind of person that would have always wanted to have been thought of or to thought myself that I was a student of the laws of nature, working with the laws of nature. But we often, I don't think we even have a beginning of an understanding of what the laws of nature are. So how can we support them? So for me, learning about those principles, he's got like 22 22 main principles and if we understand those principles then we I mean it's it's taken me a long time to integrate that information not being a scientist and then and then you've got to learn how to make decisions based on that because it's different everywhere according to the circumstances so it's about understanding the principles and I mean I still I've got I feel like I'm only at kindergarten but it was so amazing to get a beginning glimpse of what these laws of nature are and how I can work with them and support them and it immediately gives switches us into growing in a regenerative way which is also I mean you can't grow hybrid food without taking care of the earth so yeah. you grow if you're growing soil you're growing hybrid food if you're growing hybrid food you're growing soil can't separate health like and regeneration so that's super empowering thing to know that if you're doing one little thing right it's going to be causing something else to be right mm-hmm. or better and yeah. it, so it's just one little step after another one after another one because it all links up and it's all connected and we we kind of like by starting to to make these connections again and working with the laws of nature everything starts to connect up yeah. and you and and we get the buzz from that you, you feel it and you see it and and tell me when how did how did you feel when you went out after you you know you must have had one or two sessions where you're reading that book and how did you feel when you went out it's kind of a feeling amazing feeling that you had when when you went out got up in the morning and went back into your garden did it look like a different garden or what was 
What was the feeling? Oh no, it's a bit more subtle than that. It takes a bit of time, really. Okay. I think the most, the biggest wake up call for me was um, Bob and I had an apprentice go who um, had a science degree, and this guy out in Anderson was in New Zealand, and he was giving scholarships to. We couldn't afford to do his workshop, and we knew we wouldn't. I wouldn't have understood him anyway because I don't have science. Bob probably would have. Um, but we couldn't afford to go, so we got a free place for our apprentice mm-hmm. who went and did that three-day workshop, and he came back and he said to me, could he have his own? He'd been gardening with me, and he said, could he have his own garden? And I said, oh, my God, are you sure? Like, it's really hard work. It's heavy clay soil, and the work is insane. Yeah. Like, my garden's 30 years of hard work already done, and he said, no, I want my own garden. So we gave him his own garden. And he had a large garden. And within 10 weeks, we get the refractometer out and the bricks of his plants was over 12 and mine were about six. My plants looked amazing Mm. because I was mainlining them with, I didn't understand then, but what I was giving them liquid fish and liquid cow manure Uh because the compost wasn't making them grow. Yeah. I didn't understand how to make good compost. So I was mainlining them, what I know now, of liquid comfrey and all the liquid feeds, and they looked amazing and they looked incredible. But when I tested them, they were really low and wow. his were high. And, that, and the key in that case was that there was not enough available calcium in my garden and he knew, he knew that available calcium was the first thing you had to take care of because he'd done the workshop. And he was putting foliar... Um, biological calcium on and he just got the bricks straight up so that made me realize okay so my garden looks amazing you can't tell by looks we've got to start testing we need to be able to actually show we need science to show so that people can believe what we're talking about so if you go into the supermarket with a refractometer and test test your um test food it's pretty. It's pretty low. It's not. It's not a. It's not a good enough quality to maintain our health and to maintain our DNA. So, I was determined to learn how to do it. So I've just. I've learned how to do it. And here, when we came here, the humus level in the soil was four percent, and in my garden now it's thirty percent. Wow, that's really high. Pretty amazing. Yeah. Mm. So where, where did you you you've got your are you doing tests and all your things all the time? Yeah, I'm working with somebody who who can do tests, and um, so I get tests done on twice a year on my garden and on every compost heap. So I'm learning Mm. pattern languages, and I'm learning how to like manage that and improve it all the time. And that's what I talk about in my workshops and booklets. And yeah, interesting. Yeah. Um, okay, what is, I, I really wanted to, uh, probably a lot of people ask you this, this kind of subjects, but what, what is so special about heritage season? We're talking about vibration and we'll get into that, I think, a little bit with the heritage season. It's probably a big, I think it's a big factor, but what, what is so special about heritage seeds, Kay, what, you know, as opposed to organic, open pollinated seeds that aren't heritage, just the regular lines? Um, well, I think... If you'd asked me that question 20 or 30 years ago, I probably would have said um, they just feel really special because that because of – in New Zealand, there's a word, whakapapa. Have you heard that word? Yeah, whakapapa? I have actually, yeah. yeah. Whaka, our whakapapa is everything that's gone before that makes us who we are, hmm. and our food plants make us a, a part of who we are. Like we've 
carried these food plants with us forever. Yeah. And, and the seeds have been passed on down. And that I felt that really clearly right from the beginning. But now there's a lot of science to show us the difference between heritage seeds and other seeds. And so essentially my understanding now is that a heritage seed has the ability and other seeds don't because of the way they've been bred, and I can talk about that more in a minute. So heritage seeds have the ability to fully communicate with the life in the soil. Mm. So there's a lot of happening in the soil, and there's a lot of energy exchanges. There's lots of microbes and fungi, and they're all communicating, and, and there's life and death going on. There's energy. It's like... Imagine baking soda in a jar of vinegar and the reaction and it fizzes up. Well, stuff like that, things are being born, things are dying, energy is released, energy is absorbed. And our food, the heritage seeds, when they grow and their feet, their roots go down into the earth, they have the ability to communicate with the life in the soil and they, um, because of that, they have a higher ability to grow, to be able to grow, to, to be nutrient dense, which means they're then able to photosynthesize more efficiently, send more sugars down to feed the fungi. Like they, there's a regenerative circle that's going on there in the photosynthesis process. Plants that aren't seeds that aren't heritage seeds have enzyme blockers in their roots, and if the seeds have been grown in soil with glyphosate as well, that has a really big effect on how they grow, and they can never grow to be nutrient dense because yeah. they can't communicate with the life in the soil. They've essentially been bred in dead soils, and they've been bred to be mainlined with nitrate fertilizer. Mm. And, it, and those fertilizers and that plant growth misses out the life in the soil and all the energy in the soil. And the natural way to grow food is in, the, in a living soil. So yeah. in our industrial world, we've missed out that whole part and the soil just holds the plants up. But the heritage seeds have the full ability still to communicate with the fungi and the microbes in the soil. And the fungi and the microbes in turn support the plant. They feed the plant, support the plant, enable it to photosynthesize more efficiently. Then the plant has a, um, a higher electrical current, stronger electrical current flowing in it. So it has stronger ele electromagnetic attraction. For 90% of a plant's food can come from the universe, but it has to be at operating at a functioning at a high level to be able to do that. And mm. if it can't get its needs met from the soil first, it never has enough electrical energy to pull in what it needs from the universe. Mm -hmm. So we have to have heritage seeds, is my understanding, in order to create that bridge or that connection with the life and the energy and the potential in the soil. So and what what yeah. do you think in in your in your own kind of in your own uh, words how, how do you think the effect of um the, the the vibration has on on that whole process because i mean really in the end of the day if it's if it's been grown in sterile soils the difference between it's grown in sterile soils and if it's been grown by a family that have their own connection to, to that to that plant and you know they get up every day with their own stories to their family obviously that must have you know, energetically, a, a big just by my simple understanding that it must have a big effect on the on the on the genetics because we know today from epigenetics that genetics is also made up from every every second. You know what, yeah. what the person thinks. So um, it's actually also written in the in the in the Torah. You know, in the in um, the religious uh, text that 
what a person thinks when they're when they're making a baby has a big effect on the on, on the baby. So, I mean, what what do you yeah. think about the vibration, the role of vibration plays in this whole uh, picture that you said? You know, even even well, I think our, I think that we've become so dumbed down because we're living in a world where we haven't valued the life, the mm. living <laughs> world around us, and we've disconnected from it. We've become so dumbed down that it's um that's totally expressed in what's happening in the world now. Mm. So if we begin to reconnect and then we start create once you, I mean, it's just like a, a bit of a, a rolling, what is it? A rolling, um, when we were kids, we used to make snowballs and roll them in the snow and they'd gather more snow and they'd get bigger and bigger and bigger. And you'd have this big thing you could build a fort with and fire <laughs> snowballs together. Well, once you start the positive process, it just keeps gathering more and more. So it's like, like attracts like. And so, you know, the, the amazing food tastes better and so you want to eat it, so you enjoy it, so you've good energy in it. I mean, we know from epigenetics, as you said, that um, that's another reason for heritage seeds is that our, our junk DNA, which is the part of our body that communicates with our environment and especially the food we eat, can recognise the food of our own ancestors. So it communicates more powerfully those food grown from the seeds of our own ancestors communicates more powerfully with our bodies. Yeah. So it, it, it um, nourishes us more fully and more powerfully. Mm. Um, so there's so many ways that, but every, I think it, it all gets a bit much for some people. So like it's just like one small step <laughs> at a time, yeah. just one small step at a time, like how to grow an amazing seedling from heritage seeds could be one small step that everybody mm. could do. Mm. Um, yeah. And tell me the um, it's a it's, it's a, yeah it's a very it's a very it's a very amazing area for me, um, but um, uh, you've mentioned every story that you've every seed that you've got has come with a story. It's something I've heard from you say a few times, and it's um, how, how did you feel? I, I know you, that in the beginning when you started collecting seeds, you didn't really think it would you know you were just collecting a little bit, and then people started to know that it started to go around that you were um, collecting seeds and they just started to flood in people sending you a lot of seeds. Um, how did, how did it feel when you started to receive so many stories from people around, you know, um, from the, the, the people's lives around, uh, with the physical seed, like the, the surrounding the seed, how, how did it feel to actually get like a physical representation of their stories? What, what did that feel like to, to receive so many stories? Well, it's a real, it was, it's very humbling and it's really, um, it was really, really special and really amazing, but it was really um, was really hard too because it meant that I had to I had to keep them alive. Like I had to do my best to keep all mm. these seeds alive, and I didn't have any resources to do that with. So mm. it's been like an enormous challenge, and for many years it felt like a burden because I was losing seeds because I couldn't mm. keep them all alive. So it was really hard for a while, but I've come to terms with that. You can we can all only do our best. Um, it's always, I mean, we've the seed. My office in the ha this house here is next to the seed room, and through the wall there, I know we've got like the bank. It's literally the bank. It's the it's like the most precious, amazing vault or collection of. I mean, the most precious things that we could have for our future is the stories of all of our ancestors and and the amazing letters I've got from the old people. I mean, I just happened to be on the scene doing this just yeah. at the time when 
the last generation of gardeners were starting to die and they had no one to pass their seeds to because the next wow. generation, which was mostly my generation, yeah. didn't want to garden anymore. Their kids didn't want the seeds. So they had no one to pass them to and we were on TV and magazines and so they figured out they'd send them to us. Mm. So it was it was um, incredible in the beginning learning about all these food plants I'd never heard of and all these stories. And then it was scary because then these people started to die and I started to realise, oh, my God, like I'm the one holding this stuff. And I was really shaky on that for quite a while, but I've come to terms with that long ago. (laughs) Just been the journey. It's just been the journey. I've just got to do it the best I can. Um, We've got an amazing team here, like at Koanga, the staff and the garden crew, and it's a really amazing team. And everyone here gives way more than people give when they work you know it's a real amazing team of people it's, it's something i heard echoed a lot by joel salatin as well that he always um was very he's very open he, he always reminded himself to keep very open to young generation to always you know always uh, attract a lot of people around him to and keep them very empowered that you know they've got their own and he, he feels that that's a um that that's a massive part in what he does is he said he couldn't do anything but he's, he said actually he said to me one time he, he doesn't remember ever being alone and it's something that he found one or two of his apprentices actually struggled with when, when he talked with them. He realised this, you know, a lot of people today are, they're not so surrounded by people as, as, as he was. Well, he's a really amazing at that. I mean, that's one of his gifts. That's one of his great gifts to the world. I've really struggled with that because I'm a lot, I, my, my um, happy place is in the garden by myself, like when I'm communicating with the plants, like that yeah. is my happy place. And so for me, that's been an enormous challenge to because the, it is really important to have young, empowered people around us and because they're the ones that have to carry it on. And right now um, there are a lot more young, inspired people wanting to to do service or be yeah. of service to a, a new future than there ever have been that I've ever seen before. So it's, mm. it's a good time. Um, in, in many ways, it's a very positive Positive time. Tell me, um, uh, uh, Kay, would you would you be able to remember one story from something like significant story from one of your uh, one of the seeds that you've got? Um, the one that came to mind when you said that was um, yeah, this is a long time ago now. Um, we were sent these um, peas which had purple pods, and we grew them, and they looked so amazing, and they looked really beautiful. And then um, we, when we ate them, they tasted terrible. <laughs> we could never figure out why people grew them and why they wanted them and why they were kept on going and why they passed them to us. So because we, they were really awful to eat. And then, um, as always, if you actually become conscious of that and conscious that you don't know, the answer always comes. That's what I found. Like as soon as you become conscious that you don't know something and you'd like to know the answer, somehow it finds its way in. Mm-hmm. And then we got this, I think I said it in an article in a magazine, you know, that these peas taste terrible. And um, <laughs> I got this really indignant letter from somebody um, saying, oh, telling us how to eat them. Like basically they were the, um, I don't know if I've got this pronunciation right, but they're the old Dutch Capuchina peas that were bred by the Dutch monks in um, Holland um, a long time ago. And they were like, you, they're dry peas, like you make mushy peas with them and you, you 
cook them with onions and bacon or whatever. How like it's not green peas, and not wow. you don't eat the green peas. Which in New Zealand, I'd never heard of anything but green peas. You know, like chili. <laughs> Just like New Zealanders don't know anything other than green beans. Like yeah. literally, maybe maybe there's more young people now that know something about dry beans, but when I was a kid, no one had ever heard of dried beans or any beans other than green beans. <laughs> All we had in our, in our diet. And it's the same with corn. We'd never heard of anything but sweet corn. Like we were really limited. I think the English, traditional English kind of food was pretty limited. And I've just learned so much about all these food plants that came with all of our ancestors who came from a lot of countries and called in everywhere on the way in those ships. So I've learned a lot about food plants I never knew existed. And those peas were quite a good example. Like um, you can't eat them as like shell out peas the way we'd always eaten peas. But if you figure out, you know, how they were eaten, then, you know, you can enjoy them. Mm, that happened to me a lot, not knowing how to eat something. You know, tomatoes aren't just those red round things you see in the supermarket. There's all colours, all shapes, all sizes. Some are good for drying, some are good for stuffing, some are good wow. for fermenting. They're all everything's got a per, got a way to use it in the kitchen. Mm. And people don't do that kind of stuff anymore. So we just get you know the the sweet round um, tough ones that go through the tests they do to make, you know, so that they can withstand a car crash or something. I don't know how they That's test it. them to make it's them. Didn't, it's something I didn't actually uh, think, I didn't really think about in, in terms of the story of the seed, that actually the, the practicality of the story is very important, how to eat and how to how to process those plants. That's a thing about that's very interesting. Tommy, it's do a you, really I, important part of it. And I think we've almost totally lost the art of, how to store and preserve food because mm. I'm actually working through this at the moment. We've got a small urban garden here that we're using for our filming for the online workshops. And if you want to live out of your garden um, really well, it's critical that every time you've got too much of something or, you you know, you've got to preserve it and store it or dry it or and then you've got it for later on. And so instead of just having what's fresh, you've got all these other stored things as well. And it totally changes how you eat and it creates our culture. Mm. Like it's actually, it's not just what we grow and the seeds we use, but it's the understanding of how to store things and preserve things and ferment things for the future, which means we live well the whole year. And that is a really important part of it. It's where our whole culture, it's our whole culture comes out of that relationship with at the earth and our food. Mm, it's a lot about food, yeah. isn't it? In the culture. Mm. Mm. Tell me <clears throat> just a question about the heritage seeds, Kay. Uh, the, when when uh, you think um, or even the this quality set of the heritage seed to communicate with the earth, you think that carries through even if the heritage seed isn't necessarily a local, you know, endemic to that area, just the fact that it's a heritage seed also that that carries through? And if I take a seed from Mexico and it's a very, you know, it's okay for the climate and everything, but it's from Mexico, not from, let's say, Israel, and I, and I plant that seed, the fact that it's heritage, you think that, that, quali that quality carries through? Um, that's a really interesting question, and it might depend upon the consciousness of the person who's growing it, perhaps. Mm. But in my experience, in New Zealand, what I found was that um, when I first started putting this collection together, when people were sending me all these seeds, and it's a long time ago now, and there were quite a few key seeds, well, there were several key seed lines that just weren't here, that we didn't have heritage seeds of. And I imported 
heritage seeds from overseas. Mm. Um, yeah, I couldn't be able to do that so easily anymore, but years ago it was easy. Um, and what I found was that it took 20 to 30 years. It actually took 20 years, I reckoned, before, and that which for me was three generations because it was me, my kids grew up on all those food grown from all those seeds and their children are now growing up on food from all those seeds. And so for my grandchildren and even my children to a certain extent, it was normal. It was just the food they ate. Mm. I never felt until quite recently that my body was communicating well with those food plants. Really? But my, but my children, um, I feel like 20 or 30 years later, it feels like no problem at all. But I feel like it definitely took time to establish, like, communication, DNA and, like, cellular communication only becomes strong and clear after repetition, repetition. It's happened many times. Mm. Like, you build up that cellular memory. Yeah. And I think it takes a lot of, it takes time. That's what I felt. Maybe there's other ways of doing it and, you know, I can imagine there's other ways of speeding it up. But I felt I was quite conscious of that. So you think the locality is a very important is a very important thing. The lo- how many generations that's been through in that area to 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 adapt to that th- those kind of microbes and. Well, it could have been. You know, I didn't think about it like that, but that's just as important. Not only their ability for that food to communicate with us, with our junk DNA, but the ability of the of the plants to create relationships with the microbes and the fungi in our soils and mm. develop communi- strong communication there as well. So, I mean. That's not a scientific answer. That's an answer from my feeling oh. of what I felt. So I don't know about science to support that, but um, that's pretty trustworthy at this point, Kay. <laughs> I want to go by that, but I do have people that I check things out with as well. Um, yeah, yeah. I think that it's not necessarily an instant thing. It's just, it's just like. You know, if you've got a group of trees that, like, the the apple guild is a really um, easy one to talk about because a lot of people know, you know, apples came from Kazakhstan and we know what the plants were that they co-evolved with, you know, the hop vines and the berry vines and the alders and the comfrey and the microbes and specific insects and birds and browsing animals there. And so we sort of know the apple guild quite well. If you plant, like, a macrocarpa in the middle of that or an Australian acacia or something from the desert in Australia or something from a completely different environment, yeah. I can, like, tangibly feel the kind of... Dissonance. Yeah. And I think that that's happening, that happens in our vegetable gardens and it happens, mm. I mean, it even um, happens in our communities when, or like, in New Zealand... You know, the ethnic groups that are coming into New Zealand has been a very insular country for a very long time, and there are a lot of ethnic groups that haven't been here, and a lot of yeah. them are coming in now. Muslims is one of that is one of those groups, yeah. and people have been, like, quite wary of, like, people that are different, and I think that's starting to change now, which is awesome, especially after the horrendous thing that happened in Christchurch. So mm-hmm. um, it's starting to change, but there's, there's that. I, I think that's a probably a natural protection mechanism that we've developed over millennia to keep ourselves safe. Mm-hmm. But we've got to relook at that now. Is that like, does that work for us? And how do we, mm-hmm. the world is never going to be how it was. Like we can't go back to eating what 
the Māori people in New Zealand ate, they ate, yeah. you know, their food isn't even there anymore. The tuna is just about extinct. We have to create a new way of, a new culture. Mm, yeah, it's, so it's, let's it's, do it consciously and intelligently and make yeah. it work for the earth and for the people and for for the rebuilding of um, the ecological, the ecologies around us and the plant life and the animal, like everything needs to be built up again. Mm, it's something it's something very important with the message of EcoIQ as well that um, it, while many people are, you know, let's, let's get back to the horse and cart and, and get back to the tribal existence. And I really do understand that. I resonate with it. But at the same time, I feel, you know, there's no, at some point there is going back because we need to learn, you know, very ancient things. But at the same time, you know, we've got to move forward. And, and the way forward, I think, is to, is you know, is this uh, style of, of being connected. You know, it's a, a lot of the time the science, I, I feel the science needs to be just a facilitator to get more connected, you know, to understand it a bit deeper and, and, and to connect. Yeah, well, those are the conversations. Yeah, those are the conversations that we're having with um, with Iwi at the moment. Um, mm. Yeah, like what do we want? What do we really want? How do we really want to live? Like this is an amazing time, um, time in the life and or life of humans on Earth. We it's time for us to redecide how we want to live and how we want to be, and and it's time for a change. So everything's up in the air. And it's going to come down some way, mm. probably largely determined, well, partly at least determined by the choices we make. Yeah, yeah. I, th I think New Zealand's very special in that aspect because you've got, um, you still have uh, tribal people in New Zealand that have a very strong connection to the land itself. And they, were, you know, and they have had for a long time. So, you know, even if they de get disconnected, it's a similar thing. We've got a lot of um, people I know here that have, you know, they know generations who was on who was on that land in Israel and, and they have a very strong connection to that, but they're not they're not so connected to it. They're connected to the stories, but they're not so connected to the land itself. They're not, you know, not necessarily growing something on it. So it's a very I think it's a very big um, potential to have that ancient connection and also have a have a new connection to you know with growing. It's, you can't grow yeah, something. Well, we're very we're really lucky here because Maori have such strong hearts they're like we just I don't know you probably don't I don't know if you've seen on the news in the last week we had this volcanic explosion on Fakari on one of our islands and no, a lot of people got, people got badly burned and hurt wow. and died and you know there's the police involved and there's the doctors involved and there's this involved but it was the Maori people from that area who just sang and prayed and did it very publicly and called everyone in and supported everyone. And we're so lucky to have that energy in this land of yeah. of people who are actively still, like, following their tikanga, you know, their old ways of doing things, and they just do it because that's who they are and that's their job and they give so much and it was so touching and it's so moving. It's like it adds so much. To, to, to all of us, for all to all of us, it's a real blessing in this land. Yeah, I, I feel I, when I was I really resonated with that when I, I visited New Zealand once in my life when I was uh, when I was in Australia many years ago, and I really felt there was a lot of power over there. You know, it's a very very powerful for me personally. It was a very powerful place. I think it's got a lot of potential for for um it's first of all powerful by itself, but also has a lot of potential to to really um use that power to to. Have you heard of the Edmund Hillary Fellowship Scheme? Sorry, what was that? Have you heard of the Edmund Hillary Fellowship? No. 
there's a group of people in New Zealand who recognise that and who are um, trolling the world for people who they think have the most potential for creating change mm. and they've created a new visa system over here to get so they can come here easily and they're pulling them together in, in, a, in a group to work together to facilitate powerful change in the world. It's a really, really exciting group to be part of and um, they have an annual conference called New Frontiers, which has got a website. It's a really, really special um, organisation to be connected with and um, it's called, they're called, it's called the Impact Visa. They're looking for people who they believe can create an impact in the world around the sort of change we're looking for and those people are working together and supporting each other to create that change. So there's mm. a lot of energy here around that. Mm. It, it actually reminds me of something that Darren Doherty said to us uh, um, last week, a couple couple of weeks ago, um, that he said that, you know, there was a certain convention, Humboldt, I'm not sure if you know about it, it's about a congregation of different sciences coming together and integrating and it got a lot of, he said it got a lot of criticism and he couldn't believe it. It got, a, you know, just something that um, quite, a bit endemic that how, how can you um, have a criticism of integration? And I just wanted to ask you, how important do you think it is to have an open mind and be ready to integrate with, with systems that we might not be so used to? I mean, I'm not sure if you're, you've got any systems like that, but I mean, you know, let's say the, the um, gardening systems would quite, quite, I'm sure would be quite different to um, like a Joel Salatin style or, or, or Darren Doherty's, uh, you know, broad acre things with a lot of animals involved and, it's quite, you know, how important do you think it is to keep that open mind? And, and, and I think it's advice? essential. I think that's what our job is now. I think that's actually what our job is, to come together and um, that's where the power is. Mm. Like, I think we, Bob and I are very conscious that that's like the next, that's our next shift is to come together with people, lots of different people. That's kind of what the Edmund Hillary Fellowship Group is about as well. Mm. Um, we're part of that this year. Um, so I think, like, we've always sat out on the edge of it, but it's time to go mainstream. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can really see that from your work as well, Kay. It's really taking a big step forward. Uh, once, uh, Coanga always looked very beautiful, but the, with the new projects you're doing, it really feels like you're taking a step into the into the online um, online world in a big way. It's a, I think it's a, it's a really great, great um connection a great step forward how how was that for you because it's not not really <laughs> it might not be your forte getting into the online with filming and a lot of you know Instagram. No. you must have a team around you helping with that no what did, well i haven't really um and now i've got vitor vitor is a young he's a 19 year old young brazilian oh. guy who grew up with a father who was a filmmaker so he's mm. he's an amazing filmmaker very young and he and I are doing it together, um, and it's been quite challenging because neither of us have done it before, and mm. we've learned a lot, and we're getting better, but we're pretty proud of what we've done, and mm. we're going to include more people um, from now on. Um, the next masterclass we're going to do is going to be a whole series of workshops around forest gardening, um, and we've got loads of other masterclasses to do. But I think... Um, yeah, that's been challenging for me. It's been quite challenging for me. Like, you know, I'm no spring chicken. But it's <laughs> this is what I'm here for, you know, to like I've yeah. learned all this amazing stuff and it needs to be shared. So in mm. in my role is is that of inspiration. I like inspiring people is the thing that I do. So that's that's the feedback that I get is how important I am have been for inspiring people to make a shift and make a change. 
So that's what I need to do and that's what I do my best to do. And Vital and I are working on that and it's been a lot of fun and it's a lot of hard work. Like yeah. being a film, I mean, I see how hard, being a film um, producer is bloody hard work. Yeah. <laughs> hours and hours of quite hard work. Yeah, yeah, I understand. It's a, it's actually very um it was a very uh I, I really loved seeing the bit about you had about photosynthesis because I can see the influence of one of my big heroes today which is Dr Christine Jones. Oh um, yes, it's very very um confirming to see someone else you know hooking up with that knowledge that's also involved very practically in in uh, in much more local um uh, uh, areas of gardening. It's very very local. You know, it's not it's not so broad acre, and usually she works with people that are more yeah. broad acre so it's, it's great to see people other people taking on that you know that really important message Has, have you worked yeah. with her personally you talked with her or she's come to um, I've been to one of her workshops um we've got there's another woman called Nicole Masters who's um doing amazing stuff too she's just written a book for the love of soil really amazing book and lovely woman I've been working more with her but um and I've got another mentor over here as well Grant mm-hmm. Patton so I've been really lucky to have had mentors but actually there aren't many people my role has been in the gap of for home gardeners because yeah. there are quite a few people working now in biological agriculture for the broad acre. Yeah. And I, um, there's nobody um, trying to translate it for home gardeners and yeah. really that's what I'm doing. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. It's a, it's a really important, important role. I, I wanted to ask you a few questions before we, before we um, wrap up. I wanted to ask you if you've got any, if you could give advice to anyone that's, um, maybe not necessarily even that's grown up with your strong foundation of having, you know, gardeners in multi-generations, what, what's, what advice could you give to, to someone that wanted to, um, that wanted to be connected and not necessarily practical advice, but just, you know, someone that wants to take that first step to getting, getting a deeper connection to what they're eating. Well, I would suggest the easiest thing right now would be to, <clears throat> to do I wouldn't worry too much about the connection. I'd just start taking the steps. The connection comes. And I would suggest right now to do the online workshop, Grow, Growing Great Seedlings, because oh. it's a very special one at explaining, like, how to begin the process of creating regeneration. And it's simple and it's easy and everyone can do it. And that's where it all begins. Like start with, with the seed. seed. Mm. Yeah. And it show, it's a, I think it's a great little workshop and it's – it's a good place to start, and everyone can start there. And tell me if you if uh, if the if there was one without getting too blown away by it. If if there was a, if the world was now um, in a very very uh, let's say healed way, you know, in in this space that we're dealing with in ecological and ecological connection and soil and everything, what what would that look like for you? If you could just imagine for a second, what would that look like for you, practically, in your area? Um, I think we, what it would look like for me is that the, the planet would be, um, the arable areas would be covered in small villages of people rather than large urban areas and those people would be largely self-reliant with living in forest gardens pretty much, um, loads of life, insect life, bird life, animal life um, and a lot of peace and a lot of multi-generations living and sharing just like all traditional villages had all around the world. But I think the life would be the most visible difference because when you start like building the beginning of the forest gardens, you just bring life in and energy mm. in. So it would just feel that brings a lot of peace and a lot of um, the growth of plants creates a lot of amazing energy and electricity and 
vibration and mm. just just feel completely different. Small villages, traditional villages. Mm. What, what's go ahead, go ahead, go. Well, largely self-reliant, not totally. And what what's and what's a if you, if you could give one message to to people out there that you know probably definitely our audience EQIQ audience but also you know if you give a, a message to anyone that's out there that hasn't heard you your your thing so much what's that what the what's that message you would give? Um, well, I don't think that um, I kind of planned any of this. It's all just happened, mm. and it's happened because I've had the courage to. Walk through a, no, a door when it opens. Like so, when I kind of feel like there's a, something opening up, just walk, walk through it, have the courage, and whatever it is, it feels like is your next thing to do. Just do it, mm. and don't don't worry too much about it, and don't like try too hard. Like just just follow the flow. <laughs> mm. But there's doors that open. If you're looking for an answer, put it out there. What is it? You know, what's my next step? What's the next step? And just have the courage to have the faith and the courage and trust that it will work out fine. And it always does. Mm-hmm. Very positive. It's actually one of, one of my mentors actually say, he calls it pulling the trigger. He says, you just gotta, you just gotta keep pulling the trigger. It's a bit of a, <laughs> bit of a more <laughs> a war metaphor, but it's at the end of the day, it's the same thing. You just gotta just yeah, take that action. Talking through about. The door, yeah. The doors open, the door. walk through. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very powerful. I'd, I'd like to acknowledge you, um, um, uh, Kay, for your really, really important work. I know Seeds is just, that's where it is. I've actually had a mentor, uh, Jairo Respreto. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. It's a Latin American crew, Mass Humus. And he once said to me that the, the secret um, of all life is inside the seed and it's the, the most concentrated matter inside the smallest um, possible uh, uh, package. You know, and all the enzymes and all the communication mm-hmm. systems and all ever all that life and all that vitality is ready to go inside the smallest possible space. So it's really, uh, um, it's a really uh, powerful work that, that that you're doing. I think it's very underestimated sometimes. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I, I just wanted to acknowledge you for that work that you're doing with the with the seeds and all those seeds that you've and stories that you've held on to and and um and also the to uh, acknowledge you for stepping into places that you're uncomfortable sometimes that door is not so comfortable to walk through and i know yeah. you've there's many doors that you've walked through that are not so comfortable so i acknowledge you for all your work that you're doing in that area and um like we say on eco iq it's all about uh connection and i re- wish you really well in all your connections we've got to find the maori word for connection because that's a <laughs> yeah. that'd be one yeah. i don't know yeah. But um, uh, yeah. So I wish you all the best on your connections. And if, if people want to find out, I'd highly recommend people check out your courses. I'm personally going to check out. Um, I'm going to start. I'll start with the seedlings one, and I'll try and get through most of them. And I noticed also I want to let anyone know that um, it, it's a really you've got a really good offer on December and January. You're doing. I think it's it, correct me if I'm wrong here, but it's fifty yeah. percent off your masterclass, which is yeah. fantastic. I think everyone should. Anyone listening should definitely take advantage of that. It's, I, I haven't seen anything um, quite so uh, in this style. It's a very unique and comprehensive style that um, Quang is doing. So anyone that um, wants to do those, you can check it out. It's regener- regenerationproductions.com. Is that right? I think it's dot. I'm not sure if it's dot .com or dot .org, dot .co. Just check it out. The Regeneration Productions brings it up. There's not many regeneration .org, sorry. Yeah, regenerationproductions.org. And also we can find your um, general work in koanga.org.nz. Uh, yeah, and there's a huge knowledge base on the Koanga website and all kinds of stuff. It's a huge website. 
Yeah, yeah. It took took me quite a, quite a while to get through. <laughs> very very extensive. Um, and also, people catch you on Instagram, and and you know, you're also got a Facebook. You're all you're all over. You're all over. So um, people can catch you over there. So um, uh, thanks a lot for your for your contribution, Kate. It's really it's really great. Really pleasure talking with you. That's a pleasure as well. Thank you. So if anyone even wants to catch any more um, EQIQ uh, episodes um, and, and you want to keep up to date with what we're doing, you can catch us on um, Anchor, Spotify, iTunes, all the major um, uh, all the major platforms. And very soon we'll be also on YouTube. Um, we'll, there we'll have Hebrew subtitles for the people that have a bit of um, – in, in our area, they have a bit of uh, – it's more difficult for them to get the English. So um, and until then, like we said on EQIQ, it's all about connection. And uh, it's great sharing that connection with, uh, with Kay Baxter today from Coinga. But thanks a lot, and we'll see you next time. Got it.